Mind the pitfalls and watch for barriers to care transitions in this episode of Critical Conversations on Venous Thromboembolism, a masterclass series on DVT and PE. Doctors Cohen and Dottelzweig discuss the barriers to successful transitions of care among patients with VTE and offer interprofessional and multidisciplinary solutions to promote safe and high-quality care. Access the full series and complete the post-test for credit at peerview.com forward slash HBR 860. It's great to have you here for Episode 5, Knocking Down Barriers in Transitions of Care. Transition across care settings is really a high-risk time for patients with VTE, so we're going to focus on ways to make it safer. And let's first look at some of the common pitfalls. Steve? What goes yeah, wrong? So, yeah, it's, it's, it's so many things that can occur. So one, one of the areas that I always like to emphasize at every step of the journey for the patient, so whether it's the patient's coming from the clinic to the emergency room, the emergency room to the hospital, the hospital to home is med, med reconciliation. The concept I always have in my mind is never discharge a patient. We own them throughout the entire continuum. And we have, been, we have seen to have some sort of a standardized ap- approach to follow up. Because if there is some time when you have periprocedural discontinuation of DOACs or other agents, that could put them in a, uh, our patients in a much higher risk category. The area that I have embraced is something called cyber. Cyber stands for Structured Interdisciplinary Bedside Rounding. And it it really uses kind of a checklist for whether it's for for high-risk medications like anticoagulations and other aspects of care that everybody has their designed um, uh, role to play. So I'm the, the physician lead, I have my role. The case manager has their role, the nurse has their role. And together, then it, it mitigates any patient and or family uh, confusion of what may, what, what's being emphasized. So it's not one person saying something that the other person's not. And I find this to be very helpful. The other area that I would share, and I'm on the board of directors for the Anticoagulation Forum currently, and they have great resources. Uh, and most recently, um, the FDA, the U.S. FDA, sponsored and has um, the Anticoagulation Forum in partnership with the National Quality Forum to come up with an anticoagulation stewardship playbook. Think about it like we had antimicrobial stewardship, but with antimicrobial stewardship, the concern was about overprescribing antibiotics at too low of a threshold. It's kind of the opposite with anticoagulation stewardship. We're underprescribing in a lot of circumstances, and there's different. Uh, seven different elements that's mapped out, and it's available for download as a practice aid for free at acforum.org. We we should talk about strategies to improve communication with uh, the care team members across the care settings. And I guess from my point of view, I work in a in a setting where it's not an anticoagulation clinic; it's a thrombosis clinic, and I see patients with venous thrombosis, but also atrial fibrillation and congenital heart disease and all sort, and vascular disease, arterial disease. So what do we do to improve communication with our members? 
one of the things we do is we, we meet after the clinics and we discuss the cases and how we manage them. But we also um, have, have regular reviews of our patients and we have pharmacists that step in. Uh, we have, we have uh, nurses that specialize in the more acute care and all those things uh, help us work together and understand what each of us are doing. Uh, what about from the discharge and the transition? You were saying you don't actually ever discharge a patient. You feel that you're responsible for them all the way through. Is that right, Stu? Yes, we want to have that mindset. Thanks for listening to that point. But I do think that the ownership, whether it's for me in the hospital setting or one of my colleagues in the clinic setting, we really have to own that whole transition so it's not a, a voltage drop of information exchange. That's really what I was trying to connote. And, and, and one of the essential pieces, uh, of course, is the pharmacist in this effort, but also the case managers. And sometimes we utilize complex, uh, outpatient complex case management because this, because the risk is so high for some of these patients, we want to keep it tight for follow-up, tight for, for medications and duration of the, the uh, anticoagulations as prescribed. And access could be really challenging accessing um, the folks once they leave the, the hospital or the ER or what have you to, have to land safely and, and um, have the requisite uh, prescription there for the right duration. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So in, in our situation, we get them, they might come to ED, they'll be sent, if they're well enough, they'll come straight up to our clinic. One of our nurses and doctors will assess them, make a decision. And then they have a follow-up appointment that is at least a week or two before the medication is due to run out. That's that standard. And then say they're going home, uh, say they've been in hospital or going home, we can't discharge a hospital patient until a letter is emailed to the GP. And same with me. We, when I see a patient, there's a letter that goes within six days with that patient's GP and to the patient explaining exactly what we've done. And that's how we liaise with primary care physicians. So that, that's our way of doing it. But I'm, you know, they, they, I'm sure there's lots of other ways that will be better as years, with years to come. Perhaps we'll be using apps on patients' phones that liaise with their doctors as well. Yes, we have that, um, and, and, and when you get Epic, you'll find it. There's a really wonderful app, and really what you're emphasizing and what I'm emphasizing is the same thing. There's different processes in which we'll organize matters, but it really is a double down on the communication plan and having everybody informed about that plan. And one of the areas that, that come to, to play might be a transition. What if they're on one uh, agent, uh, say they're on on um, a DOAC, how do you go from a DOAC to another agent or go from warfarin, say, to a DOAC? And there's some underlying principles that you have to think about as, as you're approaching that. And it really comes down to half-life. Many of these, the DOACs and low molecular heparin, they have half-lives about 12 hours. So you got to think about that for one. And then also whether um, you know, what, what their underlying renal function is if they're good, it's about the 12 hours. So whether you're looking at the bigotran, rivaroxaban, apixaban, or adoxaban, you know, it's the, in general, when the INR drops below two and a half, 
that's a pretty safe time. Um, oh, I'm sorry, if they're going from um, warfarin to DOAC, when they drop below two and a half, that's a pretty safe time to start um, uh, the DOAC. But it's going to vary slightly based upon the clinical trials. The RCTs had different um, protocols, and that's, that, that, that would dictate whether it's a two or two and a half or three. If you were to move from a low molecular heparin to a DOAC, it really, you, you have a couple of hours of, of a fudge factor, usually less than two hours, but you could adjust that thinking about 12 hours-ish for when the next uh, scheduled dose is to be administered. And we use those fairly interchangeably. And then if you go from unfractionated heparin IV to PO-DOAC, typically the moment that you stop the IV unfractionated heparin, you could start the DOAC. That applies for, for all the DOACs with the exception of adoxaban, which they, in that analysis, it was stopping IV heparin and then um, start adoxaban four hours later. But those would be a few things that I would emphasize to the audience on the transition. Please compliment anything I said there and uh, how, if your approach is somewhat different. I, I think there's some good guidance. I, I, don't, I, I personally don't wait till the INR gets below two. I, I generally have a rule. I know there's variation from one to the other. I, I wait till they're about 2.5, just like you said. Um, yes. When they get under 2.5, it's pretty safe. And I don't want them to get below two, but I know, you know, and I, I, I estimate it too from, you know, the INR. But I think that, I think we have to be aware of what to do with transitions in both directions and, and, and transitions with all the different drugs. And the, the, I think the guidance is, is, is pretty good all in all. One point I might emphasize would be because we have such challenges around access, I think it's everywhere, but certainly in the U.S., we're now starting to give patients a longer um, uh, duration, you know, longer prescription. So as opposed to a week or two weeks or maybe even four weeks, we might go months and give them just, to, just to, so they have the support. We want to follow up with them but we wanna make sure that they have the medication, especially in the early time where recurrence of VT is so, uh, so much higher than later on that um, I am seeing that as an evolving practice to consider um, in, in one respect. Great, well, thank you. And of course, we do need to talk to our patients as we said earlier about the symptoms and signs of bleeding and thrombosis and all yes. these, all these factors, and even their worries. We have a psychologist in our our team who deals with VTE, and we have a pediatric psychologist too, because there is a sort of thrombosis neurosis, as we say, that uh, can occur, and it, it's a uh, really can be quite debilitating for some people. That's a great practice innovation that I really like hearing about. I have not heard that before, and yeah, and what. One other practice innovation I'll share is that now in this current space, access, in-person access is actually not always needed. We have another type of access, virtual, um, the virtual appointments so that you could connect with the patient from their home. Or we have another program that I've seen launched uh, uh, like APP at home. Uh, so we have somebody follow up in, 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 their, in their house, uh, a nurse practitioner or physician assistant, again, to encourage adherence and mitigate any readmission risk. So a few other ideas. Wonderful. Well, lots to consider there. And we've discussed some of the issues with anticoagulants and some of the things that arise during transitions. 
And do join us for our next episode where we'll examine real world evidence for anticoagulation in VTE management. Look forward to that, Steve. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Download the slides and practice aids for this episode and others at peerreview.com forward slash HBR 860. Be sure to listen to all eight episodes in this masterclass series and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerreview.com forward slash HBR 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from the Bristol-Myers Squibb and Pfizer Alliance.